This is a message from the Art Intelligence Agency. Welcome to AI Agents, a program that explores the intersections of innovation and artificial intelligence. This podcast is brought to you by a collaboration between the Australian Institute for Machine Learning and the C.F. Fowler Institute at the University of Adelaide. Join our host, Tim Whiffen, in conversation with creatives, academics, and professionals in exploring how human and artificial intelligence can collaborate in divergent ideas for our future. As humans, we understand, we feel, and we sense things, phenomena, and we are able to be sure of their existence and communicate these things through what's known as a combinatorial ontology. You and I can agree on the existence of this podcast, and we could describe my voice as proof. Therefore, it is real. I can use this information in trust to communicate through a podcast with you, knowing reliably that you will understand it. Artificial intelligence is yet to experience things, so can it reliably communicate anything that connects with our experience? Art explores interaction between humans and between entities in our natural world. From natural resources like plants to complex minds of animals, all things are part of a constant system of communication and expression. And while that description says almost nothing of substance, it demonstrates that while AI can be used to explore those ideas, it can hardly participate in them as an individual agent. An individual AI agent who has explored those ideas thoroughly and is returning to this podcast is Tim Grushy. I joined Tim again to discuss his significant works, the industry attitudes toward AI, and some philosophical questions as we move towards more AI creativity. I'm reunited with Agent Tim Grushy at the Art Intelligence Agency. Thank you very much, Tim. Pleasure, Tim. Good to be back. <laughs> well, our audience have already had an explanation of, I guess, your artistic interests. Uh, what I would like to ask is if you could give some of perhaps your favorite examples of some of the work that you've done that did not or even didn't in- include AI. The strongest work I have in this regard is a piece called Scout. Um, I love acronyms. Sentient Correlator of Urban Transaction. So Scout is a highly interactive piece of public art that sits in Takatai Square in Auckland, which is uh, just off the main street, so a very public place. It's been there for eight years. It's conceptually built around the idea, first put forward by Arthur C. Clarke in a short story, The Sentinel, which was the precur- written in the 1940s and was the precursor to 2001 A Space Odyssey, wow. which he later then took that, that idea. And the fundamental idea is that off-world intelligence is monitoring the evolution of human intelligence. So that's, <laughs> that's the sort of core of the yeah. idea. And if you think about 2001, there's the monolith at the beginning, with the big black monolith and the apes and the bones and stuff. And the monolith is the, is the technology that's monitoring the evolution on the planet and so this work was posited as a benevolent sentient entity and and there's a bigger story to this too but um yeah i won't bore you with that (laughs) but um it's all connected yeah it's all connected exactly so so the original work was actually called sentinel but um the global financial crisis meant that the yeah long story in in the end there is instead of 
eight monolithic towers, creating an architectural formal sub-perimeter in the square, there is one tower. So it's an eight-metre-high monolithic tower. It's And as I say, posited as a sentient, benevolent entity that engages with the community, so thus the acronym SCOUT, sentient correlator of urban transactions. So it engages with people, highly interactive, um, microphone for ears, camera for eyes, touch sensitive, environmental sensors, and strictly speaking, not using any, and this was made 10 years ago, because it was a long time in the commissioning, and no actual AI programming within it, but very, very complex programming. And what happened was, and this was sort of part of my intention, because when you create interactive or even screen-based art in the public sector is Mm. highly problematic because, you know, we live in such a polluted visual Mm. environment in this part of the world and in most parts of the world where we're subjected to so much commercial screen activity. I believe it really has polluted us. So if you're, as an artist, if you're going to create screen-based work and put it in the public sector, you have to differentiate it Mm. from commercial screen screen space because culturally that's how people read these things and there's many ways that one can do that so in this instance it's an eight meter high monolith led wall but it's got all of these sensors feeding it it's got a huge array of mathematically generated content both pre-made content and real-time generative content and subject to complex rule sets from all of those sensors including a clock and a you know, calendar, so it knows the seasons and the time of day and the day of the week and all these things, and and thus has some one could say has some uh, understanding of the activities of this square, uh, where you know there's a lot of office workers, there's markets on the weekend, there's buskers, there's all sorts of activities that happen on you know in a regular sort of way. So it synthesizes all of that, and then it decides what it's going to do sonically cool. and visually, and one of the things that was so great about it was that from the moment, the day we first in New Zealand, where I lived at that time, um, in Murray culture, you have the, uh, the blessing karakia, I think, if my memory serves me correctly, where Komatua, a Maori elder, comes and uh, blesses the work at dawn and, and we turned it on for the first time publicly in front of a small invited audience. And... It was just one of those extraordinary moments where, and I'd been working on this thing for a year, where its behaviour, there was there was absolutely emergent behaviour. Scout was listening, was paying attention to what was going on and behaved in a way that was, that was clear. All of us, particularly myself mm. and other people that had been involved in the project, we were just absolutely flabbergasted mm. at the way Scout came to life. It would have been really and emotional, I yeah, 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 it was. I mean, it was an emotional time mm. anyway, but, um, yeah, it was hyper-emotional. And um, and then that continued, and what became apparent was that I could never... People would say to me, oh, what does it do? And I would say, well, I can't tell you because it's always different. Mm. And if you're going to create public work, um, and that what I was talking about, you know, differentiating yourself from commercial screen space... You've got to, you know, and you're putting it in the public zone 24-7 all year round, it's got to be variant. So it can't just be a bunch of files playing. It's got, mm. you know, well, to my mind, that doesn't interest me. Um, so it, it, so essentially, even though it's a foe of artificial or, you know, off-world intelligence, which, you know, is actually a different thing potentially to artificial intelligence mm. created by humans, then it was all there. The emergent behaviour was there. So it was very successful. 
and and it's continued to be. And when I still lived in New Zealand, which I haven't for some years now, uh, the developers, because it was a, a cultural precinct, the square where it's uh, located is, there was um, a lot of, they put money into various uh, cultural activities. And a couple of times a year, they would uh, support me to do live concerts with Scout cool. as a collaborator. And what became, and when I first sort of was given that opportunity and was thinking about how to approach that, it was like, well, do you know, because, you know, I can get under the hood, I could change the program, I could do all sorts of things, you know, mm. ways of dealing with it. But essentially, Scout, by its nature, has its generative sound, it has generative vision, and it has a stack of senses. So when I did it the first time, I thought, oh, well, as an experiment, I'll do nothing. I'll just play, you know, <laughs> set up. And when I say play, I make virtual instruments where, you know, I can, using leap motions, I can resolve my hand gestures in a very resolute way and I can control sound and vision mm. um, in a performative um, context um, in front of an audience. So I did this next to Scout and Scout just took off again. It just was very, very comfortable with, um, and it became a, a truly collaborative performer. Cool. And then this then developed over a number of years where I do this a couple of times a year. And so then I started to get a sense of how that was actually working. Because again, you know, when you complex programming, you don't always know how it's going to behave. And that's part of what I love about that sort of style of programming. Yeah. Um, you set up a bunch of parameters and then see what happens and that's part of you know working with ai's too and you know in one of your questions that you gave me beforehand you talked about you know how does one think about ai's are they a collaborate collaborator and that's exactly how i when i'm working with ai's mm. that's how i think of them as a collaborator as a collaboratory contributor to the final work and one doesn't necessarily like all collaboration you know you don't get to dictate everything. Mm. Um, you might get to influence things. And, you know, and in the AI um, undertakings that I've done, and I'll talk about some of those in a moment, um, one can influence that collaborator, but one can't predetermine what it's going to do, unlike so many other digital tools, which are way too predetermined. Yeah. And that's why these sort of, you know, in the, um, complex audio, visual, haptic, immersive, Things that I make are so engaging for me, and and are successfully engaging for audiences too, because there's a lot going on, and it draws people in. People mm. are innately interested in exploring these things. So Scout would be my absolutely most favourite work by a long shot. Still there, um, still going. Um, originally, you know, it's it's always difficult putting high-tech stuff out in the public space. And as I say, originally there was this idea of Sentinel and I still live in the hope that that may yet happen. And we originally talked about Scout cool. for 10 years. So so that's out there um, very successfully. I have another work called Journey. The acronym is eluding me at this moment, um, which is being installed in China at the moment. And again, it, it doesn't have actual AI programming in it, but it uses some techniques that allude to it. And it's actually about, you know, you know, it's about how we traverse the environment. And in this instance, it's in a public 
sculpture park that where people are passing through. So I'm interested in playing in these ideas of um, that in life we travel. So conceptually that's the terrain. Mm. But it sort of plays back and it's a big stainless steel, very low-res lenticular screen. So it's got multiple LED facets, but then I've mirrored it in a sort of sawtooth, low-frequency lenticular way. And, um, and it... Yeah, so it, it again represents back to people very complex potential futures, shall we say? Um, in terms of so so you know, as you can see, it's these big um, interactive uh, public artworks are the things that I get most excited mm. about, and the work that I referenced in our earlier program, which was just on in Brisbane recently, it's a work called Storm. Stochastic translator of resonant morphology, <laughs> and you can see I really like that. It's acronyms. very cool. It, it, it's been a very successful work. It's not been. It actually it was bought by a collector, and so it does exist permanently in a collector's home, but it's never been permanently installed in a public space yet. And I'm constantly fishing around for those ideas. The public art sector is nervous about technology <laughs> you know they like a big bit of metal or stone that you can pop there and not worry about it right, um, yeah. so you know and it, you know it's not rocket science you can make these things that will last for decades you've just got to apply the right sort of um, uh, thinking and engineering principles and, mm. you know it's all possible in terms of actual AI I was I had an interesting proposition when I was working at the Shanghai Academy of Fine Arts I was asked to curate a survey show of artists working with AI and it was a fascinating undertaking because it gave me the opportunity to get to know the community of artists around the world who are working in this realm. And But at the same time I thought, well, if I'm going to do this, and in China, in Australia you would never put yourself in a show you curated mm. in china you can do that okay. yeah yeah <laughs> it's sort of almost expected Interesting. and so i undertook a work and i was, I was interested in the the, fi- the philosophical the new aesthetics so it was oh, a philosophical okay. proposition um, originally developed by an english artist whose name will come to me in a moment and um and put forward at a conference and about 10 or 12 years ago now suggesting that um asking philosophical questions about artists working with AI. And so I was, in my research for this show, I sort of read a lot of that work. So I thought, well, I'll do a work that's actually sort of conceptually thinking about that and and what... and. I'm very interested in the re-emergence of beauty in the art world. You know, and I've been around for a long time, so there's been different phases, and I'm talking the contemporary visual arts world. There are certain periods in history where beauty is not, you know, acceptable. Um, and I've, these days, I'm very interested in bringing some beauty into the or attempting at any rate to bring some beauty <laughs> into the world. So I was interested in this idea of what is beauty, Mm-hmm. And, and I've done a lot of other works that are sort of where I look at cross-cultural readings of things. But um, so beauty is a culturally imbued concept in many mm-hmm. ways, actually. So I started working with the idea, I wanted to sort of tease that into some sort of essential, well, some sort of essence. So I decided that flowers were an emblem of yeah, fairly universe, common one. a common, mm-hmm. if not universal, at least yeah. a common signifier of Mm. beauty so i then worked with 
uh, one of the deep dream generators and I did it and this went on for a long time and as I say I couldn't control it but I could influence it so I then started dreaming all of these images of flowers which which then became motion sequences as I saved different um, iterations of the the dream Mm. to use that terminology and then on certain times I personally would make an aesthetic judgment that this was beautiful or this was ugly Mm. but I decided I didn't want to use the word ugly so I I used unbeauty so the work is called beauty unbeauty and it's manifest as a in its full version, it's a five screen in a linear, okay. five separate screens mm-hmm. linearly, but each of those screens breaks down as well. So centre one is single, two on either side of that are in halves, and then the two on the either side of that are in eighths. Wow. And and that was, you know, there was sort of a conceptual thinking about that as well. So it's been a quite a... Again, uh, you know, it's a very poetic work. Mm. Uh, and unlike a lot of my works, it doesn't have a soundscape. Ne- nearly always I put soundscapes with my works. Um, I'm not sure why I didn't actually get around to doing that. But it was a very it, – and it's now been shown around the world and not permanently anywhere, but coming to a somewhere near you soon, I hope. <laughs> um, and it's sort of, you know, yeah, really trying to sort of think about that philosophically. I mean, it's interesting when we talked – in our last episode about AIs being a brush that, you know, can be used, when I look back, and that work was now made three years ago, I suppose, and already it starts to look a bit dated in that context to me. Mm. So unlike what I consider my core work, which is the interactive stuff, it's a, at the end of the day, it's a linear piece. It's, mm. it's five asynchronous screens, which, you know, allows for a, sort of a, a degree of pseudo-randomness, shall we say? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's the, the linear works date. Yeah. And okay. and already when I look at that and thinking mm. about what other artists have been doing with AIs, I think yeah, it's already looking a little dated. Well, it's interesting though because you know even in the randomness the human brain as it is does designed really to pick up patterns. Mm. And this whole idea of art being a form of communication in some sense the audience is able to draw the patterns, draw the communication from that, regardless of whether it even intends to put that pattern out there. You know, I, I it, couldn't agree more. Yeah, so it, it it maybe it does date, but it's not it, like it's never it's never going to be irrelevant. No, that's true. And different audiences will bring their own sort of thinking to these things. No, that's very true. And I and I love that about you know the the variant approaches that. Uh, audiences bring to artworks, mm. and and I suppose one of the things you know talking about. Uh, my own practice and what I consider to be successful works of mine. One of the things that I've tried to do, and because I dominantly don't work in the commercial art world, um, you know, I get commissions, I, I'm very fortunate, I get asked to do all sorts of different things, and and I do have, only very latterly, I have a commercial gallery aspect to my practice, mm. but it's not been a dominant part of the history of my career mm. and in fact in many ways you know I've eschewed it because well uh, uh, I won't go down that road I, I like to make works that and and I once heard someone talking at a conference about pianos you know and if anybody can hit a key on a piano and it's a it's a you know it's a pleasing sound by and yeah. large the sound of a piano is resonant and rich and mm. you know all of those things so any Anybody can do that. A dog can hit a key and it sounds, you know, halfway okay. Yeah. But then a concert pianist can sit down and just make the most complex, insanely beautiful and, mm-hmm. cha- you know, all of those 
things that can be brought to bear with that instrument. And and I think good software can be like that too. Mm. You know, good software you should be able to use intuitively, easily and get it, you know, achieve something with it, but then it should get layered and you should be able to go deeper with it too. So in my works and the ones I've just described, particularly the first three, um, they all fit very much in that paradigm. So and, and it's also about interactivity is rewarded. So as the audience interacts with work, the more they put into it, the more they get out of it, so to speak. And I've developed uh, systems and paradigms of uh, monitoring energy so I can uh, create a subroutine that will, over time, monitor the amount of energy that an audience... And an audience, you know, I'm, I prefer multiple user interactivity mm. as well these days over single user interactivity. So you can create subroutines that uh, accrue the amount of energy that an audience is putting into a work, whether it's their physical you know, amount of movement they're doing or sonically if they're yelling and clapping. or you know, So you yeah. can actually gather that and and define it as an energy state that's been put into it. So the Interesting. More, yeah, so the more energy, and this was a technique that I developed a long time ago, but I've refined it considerably now. So the more energy they put into it, the more the work can reveal of itself. And um, sometimes that's about going into a whole new paradigm so that, you know, if you walk by a work, and, you know, I'm thinking about Storm particularly because I've, just been observing that a lot in that show in uh, Queensland and editing some videos of it where I was specifically trying to focus in, you know, videos of audience reacting to the work, but specifically trying to edit documentary videos that highlighted that the engagement of the audience, mm. you know, and that's a work where anybody can walk by, something happens, usually they're attracted, you know, often visually initially and then sonically perhaps. Uh, but if you give yourself over to it a little more, and it's, you know, stochastic was the first name, so it's it's randomised um, or pseudo-randomised in yeah. computing terms. So it doesn't always give, you know, it doesn't necessarily behave the same way. But the more you give to it, the more energy, not just a person or a group of people give, the more it can then move into another phase and suddenly whole new layers of, of uh, perceived behaviour start to manifest. It's very, very cool. I love this idea of interactivity, you know, as not an artist, not a critic myself, you know, sometimes it's easy to feel, especially with avant-garde things, almost gaslighted by mm. by by not knowing, you know, what what this is meant to be communicating. You're not being able to draw anything from it at all. Whereas the interactivity inherently, you have this sense of I have contributed to mm. this, and and that in itself is meaningful. And and whatever else you draw from that is obviously a bonus. Mm. <laughs> yeah, well, it's engagement mm. and um, immersive psychological immersion. Mm. So for me. You know, it's it makes sense, and I've developed techniques that where it's easy for me to um, engage people. Yeah, yeah. And then, if I'm successful, immerse some of them at any rate. Yes. In, in some sort of psychological thing where they feel that they have well, they not just feel, but they have contributed, and then hopefully they feel they've contributed. Yeah, interesting. You know, I don't necessarily want to get into the the privacy side of things but i know that you like to address the idea of memory in your work and i'm not sure if any of those uh, uh pieces you've mentioned so far um uh, would, would would include that category but you know there are definitely computer systems behind the, the, there is at least you know computational systems behind you know, these pieces you know um and, and and in many ways 
uh, the memory that you would have in a computer is, is sort of infallible in the sense that the information is always there to draw from, whereas a human memory doesn't quite work like that. <laughs> Ain't um, that the truth? <laughs> luckily, it's a seemingly harder to uh, corrupt or uh, lose a human memory in the, in the same way that you might have with an old hard drive. But <laughs> um, is, you know, how, uh, the question I want to ask is, how do you, how do you leverage like a, a machine's memory to kind of challenge an organic memory? Oh, that's interesting. I'll just preface. Yeah, okay. That's a that's a challenging question. Actually, none of the works that I've described thus far are heavily involved with memory. Mm. I do have a whole suite of works that um, engage with memory, and often it's about uh, cultural memory, signifiers of memory, and exploring some of those themes. Okay, if I jump back to Scout that I started talking about earlier, one of the propositions with that was do I take snapshots of people and then represent them back to the audience, mm. thus engaging a memory, a, a digital computer memory of the moments of engagement within the public square. And I did actually think about that a great deal and, of course, we now live in an era of, um, uh, quite rightly, privacy concerns. Yeah. So, And I have a, you know, a sophisticated opinion about an understanding of, of these issues, and some of which I strongly support, other of which I think have gone too far, and, you know, we need to find some middle ground, but I won't go on about that. So in the case of Scout, I actually decided not and I decided that I wanted it to be much more generative and real-time, well, responsive to different sets of things and not play with the... And, and re, you know, and if we think about signifiers of sentience, memory is one of them. Mm. Um, so to actually, you know, be able to remember something and then re, either regurgitate it or reiterate it or incorporate it in some sort of, you know, yeah. is a signifier of sentience. I decided not to primarily for privacy reasons. Mm -hmm. um, I wanted this, you know, I wanted it to be very friendly and I didn't want anybody to create, you know, to have any issues with that. That's my memory of why I chose not to do that. Now, in terms of actually, I don't think I've done any works that actually challenge organic I memory. See. I've certainly done works where I elicit mm -hmm. uh, memory responses mm -hmm. from... I did a work with my brother Mick called the Museum of Dreams in the early noughties, I suppose. Mm -hmm. And the conceptual proposition was that if in the future we can record dreams, well, then somebody will have repositories of dreams, be they scientists of whatever particular avenue. So we created a booth, an immersive booth, where people, um, you know, individually or groups of up to about five could fit in there and they could experience, and it was fully immersive, so wraparound screen, wraparound sound, subwoofer under the seat, cool. da -da 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 -da. and it, you know, it monitored you, it came to life when you walked in and gave you some orientation and then you were invited to cool. experience people's dreams in this immersive audiovisual environment, but then you could switch it into another modality where it would, you could leave a dream. Okay. Yeah. And thus it became a repository of collecting people's memories of dreams. I see, I see. I see. And, um, and it was, again, it was a very interesting 
work that needs to have needs to have another life actually because the amount of <laughs> tech that was involved in that era was just insane whereas now I could do it all with one computer yeah, yeah. <laughs> quite easily and you know that's something I need to do actually so it wasn't really challenging that mm. sense at all it was really just you know creating a mechanism that would allow people to remember things mm. and what I learned and then we were approached by a number of museums in fact to create other versions of this booth not not as art but as museological social memory gathering mechanisms mm. and again you have to seed these things so you start off and you go and you you know i mean we did one for the museum of brisbane that was about the 70s politics of you know resistance to the bjorki peterson corrupt government in that era so we start so just like our museum of dreams which was it was an artwork and dealing with different concepts and but you start off where you have to make something you have to put something in there to encourage people to then leave their own mm. so so i learned directorial techniques for working with particularly through the museum work for working with oral histories where you could elicit people's memory so i so i sort of and then i would create works that hopefully tried to achieve that as well so you'd give them some triggers and then they would listen but again i don't really see that as a challenge and that's sort of using the the digital technology as a as a way of accruing stuff but then there was no analysis of going on within that and mm. one of the things i you know at the time and as i say this is nearly 20 years ago that that museum of dreams was made one of the things i imagined at the time was that at some point in the future from that era and this would be possible now you could actually create a a real time interpretation of someone's dream as they spoke it cool. so you know and that's now you know with word recognition and yeah. real you know the power of computers you could actually do that now yep. to some extent creatively it's sort of going off in a different era to the original work where we would go through the logs you know we'd end up with these logs of hundreds of incredible dreams that people would generously give us which yeah. we would then and we were recording sound and vision yes. although we tended not to use the vision it was the was the vocal quality became the more interesting aspect and then we would make you know we would actually manually go in go through the you know the computer's log so mm -hmm. to speak well in actual fact in that era i think it was a videotape machine was oh wow yeah, <laughs> yeah. i mean yeah. it was a long time ago um was the most efficient way of actually recording that but essentially a digital uh memory mm -hmm. but we would then manually analyze that and then remake some of those and then feed them back into the system so it was very you know clunky in actual fact compared mm. to what one might do now um yeah it's interesting i don't um you know, the way AIs work in processing lots of material and giving it back and that, you know, clearly that has a, a very strong and, you know, and there are many different approaches to that going on within AI programming. Mm -hmm. That has a very strong relevance to organic memory. Mm -hmm. But, I yeah, I haven't really pursued that um, in terms of, yeah, it's interesting now that you put it in that phrase of, a, of challenging the relationship <laughs> mm. between the two. I mean, that's, that's an interesting philosophical point of view. And one of, yeah. the, one of the fascinating areas about all of this is the, you know, as I talked about the new aesthetics as a philosophical um, area of, you know, interest 10 more years ago, um, yeah. there, there is a whole lot of, and, and I had to just tell a quick little story. I was, when I was working at Shanghai, um, in the digital art department, I got an invitation, and I don't know how they found out about me, but I got an invitation to give a paper in the philosophy department cool. to a bunch of philosophers about at a conference about memory. And at first I was so out of my 
um, comfort zone. I went, I can't talk to, you know, philosophers about memory. I, what do I know? And my partner said, no, 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 it's okay. You just talk about, you know, because I've got half a dozen works over the decades that I've done that particularly pertain to memory. Um, and I'll come back to that a little bit in a moment. But um, she said, no, no, you're, you're, you're making work that, you know, um, expounds the ideas that they spend all the time thinking about. They'll yeah, love it. Yeah. So I nervously went in there and gave this paper specifically about, you know, four or six of my works that pertain to memory. And exactly as was predicted, <laughs> they just loved it and couldn't get enough of it. And they were just fascinated that some an artist was actually taking some of these ideas. And cool. I was equally very interested in what, you know, what they were talking about. Yeah. And again, it was over a three-day conference. It was a, a lot of area was covered. Yeah. And, and, Part of that is social memory, and that's where a lot of my works that pertain mm. to memory, because I started off, my mother, you know, in our family, and as in many families in Australia in that era, I'm talking the 60s, um, the, you know, cameras were uh, not common items, and, yeah. and it was uh, the family slideshow was a thing, mm. and that was how, you know, social history, one of the mechanisms where society remembered its social activities yeah. and families did, and they would come together with the slideshow. That certainly happened in our family, and, and perhaps this is one of the early sort of seminal triggers in my own career because you know, I was fascinated with this idea of slide projectors and slides and and um, and later reel-to-reel -reel tape recorders. And this is when mm. I'm still a kid, you know, and um, because they were there and, and I was able to – and mum – particularly, and Dad, encouraged me to sort of, you know, explore these possibilities. So so I became interested in how different technologies are social memory signifiers. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and because I particularly had done a lot of work with slide projectors back in the day, and part of that was, you know, this is pre-digital, they were affordable. Mm. You know, one could do a little bit of stuff with Super 8 and occasionally 16 mil, but that involved... Bigger budgets. This was when I was yeah. you know, an emerging artist. Whereas you could work with slides, and you didn't even necessarily use have to use cameras either. You could you know hand paint them and scratch them and yeah, all of those of sort course. of cameraless techniques, all of which were sort of things that I wouldn't photocopiers. And you know we used to do things where we would decay images on photocopiers. Yeah. You know photocopy it, photocopy it again, 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 yep. and it slowly decayed. And it was this technique that became a signifier of degradation of memory yes so if you then took that and turned that into an image sequence you had the original very cool camera image and then you had its decay so so these became techniques that i started to become interested in and play with a lot and still do to some extent and as i say cultural different technologies being cultural signifiers and memory of different points in social history mm. and and in my career i've surmounted the entire um era of videotape mm. so when i first started working with video in 1975 it was black and white reel to reel yeah and then gradually we went through all the different flavors of videotape <laughs> and then eventually it all you know 20 or less years ago we moved away from videotape into solid state memory and it became just a purely digital form but if one goes back through, and that of course continues to evolve too in terms of you know resolution and mm. production values and each of these is a very uh, precise historical signifier mm. of the social memory of that era, both in terms of how it was used, but also in terms of the actual, you know, qualitative 
components of it or, the, or the, you know, and how we read it. So, you know, different, you know, if you play old VHS tape, it sort of takes you to the 80s. Yeah. If you put slide projectors on, it takes you to the 60s yeah. and so on and so forth. So, so I was interested in exploring that and some of my, some of my memory-based work is, is about those explorations. So interesting. I, I think that the, the observation, and I'll give you a chance to perhaps re, reword this. I'm, I'm sure you have a, a more distilled version of this, but it's so interesting that really what's been highlighted in the conversation is that the, the human experience is made up of so many complex things. There's elements of memory and, and within that, how you've experienced those memories through whatever senses. And then being able to draw patterns amongst those things. And so what we are made of as intelligent beings is so complex and is constructed with things beyond our control and within our control that there's uh, a, quite a lot that an AI would have to catch up to. But equally, mm. there is a lot that we can collaborate with in the sense that it can affect some of those uh, experiences. In the AI can... It can be several different roles, but one thing is for sure right now is that it can't be, it can't replace the the human. I guess, yeah. Indeed, I would pick up on a point though: can influence. It is influencing. Mm. Um, AI is already pervasive in the world that we live in. It's driving the money markets and has been for a long time. It's driving all the search engines, which are now such an integral part of our life. Mm. And you know, and we all now operate in this way where you know, and I'm absolutely do this where i talk about my phone as my digital memory because if i take a photo of something i can re-refer to it in a you know chronologically or other searchable way Mm. um the ai based algorithms that are driving every search that we do on google or whatever search engine we use that drive facebook feeds all the other social media feeds these are all now, now, and mm. for some time, being driven by more and more sophisticated AIs. So I think we as a society need to be very clear about that. It's not We're not talking about a future, we're talking about a now. Yeah. And, and for a long time, I've always felt that it was important that artists work with technology, perhaps to inform the community's relationship to the technology, mm-hmm. but also to uh, you know subvert some of the dominant paradigms. Mm. And when I started working with technology in the 70s, a lot of it was being driven by the industrial military complex. Mm-hmm. You know, video was developed for the Vietnam War, yeah. so on and so forth. Um, the internet was developed by you know DARPA, um, and so it goes on. Yeah. Um, so very early on. I thought it was important that, you know, we as creative community ask some questions about was this, you know, a good thing. Yeah. And and then of course we've now here we are forty years later, well, here I am forty years later, <laughs> um, still thinking about these things. And of course it's all changed and evolved. And now we have a situation of you know, the industrial military complex is still huge and very much part of it, but big tech is now the dominant paradigm yeah. in terms of geopolitics and, yep. and everything that happens on this planet and every, all the vectors that are driving all of the dynamic, you know, fast-changing situations mm. that affect the planet. So 
if we understand, we as a community understand that AI is now driving all of this, and you know, it may not be uh, anything like as sophisticated as we've talked about the, mm. the, the human brain, mm. but nonetheless, these are the dominant paradigms of uh, dynamic mechanisms that are affecting all of our lives. In you know, even in the developing world, it's of influenced in other ways, but certainly here in you know in our part of the world it, it really is affecting our lives. So so again I think it's very important that artists, even though you know um, some of the driving factors are somewhat different, we we need to be thinking about these questions and asking these questions and, you know, questioning mm. whether or not this whether or not to have Facebook or any other giant company that's now bigger than any government in the world yeah. um, influencing our behaviour mm. and, and our sense of, you know, and memory is, a, is very much a part of that. You know, mm. memory is, is part of our uh, makeup. You know, mm. that's how we define ourselves is through the experiences we've had in life and how we review those mm. and what we take from that. So to have that being mediated by corporately driven AIs where, and in actual fact, mm. you know, the reality in a lot of AI programming is that, you know, the very people that are doing and it's no longer single people, it's huge teams of people that mm. are evolving these algorithmic um, entities, uh, they don't know. They can't, just like I couldn't predict, you know, and I'm my stuff's yeah. simple by comparison, simplistic, but, you know, one can't predict how these things, the outcomes are going to go. Yeah. So, you know, and I keep coming back to Facebook because they're, you know, pertinent at the moment in what's mm. happening in the world and um, and not listening to community feedback much at all, just pushing on with their own agendas mm. and, and, and affecting, you know, if you think about people's relationship to their Facebook feeds, you know, that is very much a part of people's memory and, you know, social very construct. So, so these are very crucial issues, I think. Mm. And again, you know, so it makes sense to me that artists try and, you know, ask some questions about this and, and that work that utilises these sorts of ideas and questioning should be the sort of, to my mind, is the sort of uh, work that, you know, the community needs to be engaging with, mm. you know. So I'm critical of the conservatism within the, <laughs> not just the visual art worlds, but in many of the art worlds. And, of course, you know, that's sort of, you know, as an older artist, I guess you get, um, you know, you have a body of experience and you try and bring it to bear in a, you know, back to the community and give and mm. sort of, you know, benefit, not just be a grumpy old man. <laughs> <laughs> so you don't give that impression at all? No, no, yeah. I, don't, I, try, I try not to. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Tim Grushy. It's um, been an absolute pleasure to, to talk with you uh, over these couple of episodes and all the best with your future endeavours. I'm sure that there'll be something in the future that we can talk about again. Indeed. Thank you, Tim. And it's good to know that, you know, podcasts such as yours are out there exploring some <laughs> of this material because it's important. Thank you very much. Cheers. If you're intrigued by Tim Grushy's art or articulation of ideas, make sure to follow his installations and artistic endeavours on his website or follow him on YouTube using the links in the episode description. Thanks for listening to AI Agents. Please remember to subscribe to the podcast on your favourite podcatcher and consider giving it a review. Do not forget that you can share this episode with other intelligent people and things, but for now, it is time to close the pod bay doors, Hal. <laughs>